Brexiteers promise unending fury against the Chequers plan, but have they gone over the top too soon? Plus the deselection frenzy in the Labour Party, whose leader could soon be homeless. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading the latest podcast. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the 1980s, specifically, obviously, the amazing music. Though admittedly not everything from the 80s was perfect, I never had much time for those loud American rock bands with stupid names and stupid hair. And this brings me to Rolling Thunder, a name you would expect to be associated with four or five chaps in leather trousers with ridiculous perms. Instead, he refers to Jacob Rees-Mogg, obviously, and his gang of malcontents brooding on the back benches about Brexit. The Rolling Thunder to which they refer is not a selection of rock ballads. It's instead a series of interventions over the next few weeks, which are designed to force Theresa May to abandon the Chequers plan for Brexit and instead embrace their own dream, leaving the EU without a deal, storming out of the door, pausing only to punch Johnny Foreigner in the nose for added effect. If the aim was to slowly ramp up the tension, they may have gone over the top a little soon. Let's bring in Robert Meakin at this stage. Robert, a rolling thunder was supposed to slowly bring to the boil all the anger that's lurking on the back benches. And then within a week, dozens of MPs turn up at a meeting and just start having a chat about how to get rid of Theresa May. By all accounts, quite a detailed chat about how to game the system and how to exploit letters demanding a vote of confidence. Now, some people have pointed out, well, look, Jacob Rees-Mogg wasn't at this meeting. Boris Johnson wasn't there. David Davis, Ian Duncan Smith, none of the, the big beasts of Brexit turned up to this meeting. But... Even if this wasn't seriously about launching a plot now to unseat Theresa May, it was certainly about getting one talked about. And that's quite extraordinary in itself. It certainly is. And as you say, as soon as such an organisation is set up as this, you know, people say, oh, this, this is going to be a slow burner. Well, modern British politics just doesn't do slow burners. We're in this hysterical situation right now where it's crisis after crisis, plot after plot, and inevitably the springs very quickly burst out of the heads of uh, Brexiteer Tory MPs who couldn't wait to start plotting to plunge the knife into Theresa May. Obviously, the big players, the Boris Johnsons, the Jacob Rees-Moggs of this world, they're not going to leap forward and join this rabble immediately. They will wait to see how things play out. Uh, but the, there's no question that the, the wheels of, uh, are turning in terms of the, the bloodthirsty Tory backbenchers. Is Theresa May going to be forced out in the next two weeks? Probably not. But it's a reminder that there's a significant minority of Conservative MPs who care a lot more about Brexit than they do about keeping the Conservative Party in office. Someone like Steve Baker, say, the former Brexit minister who quit when David Davis did, saying on the one hand, no, 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 there's no plot. There's no plot at all. But then also saying, well, I am gravely concerned about a schism of some kind in the Tory party. And there are up to 80 Tories who are ready to vote against a final deal if it's based on checkers. Now, look, I think if push came to shove, if rejecting checkers meant a snap election or it meant leaving without a deal, you are not going to see 80 Tory MPs lining up to jump off the cliff. But it doesn't take 80 MPs, it doesn't take much past the teens for the government to lose the vote. And so 
you can see the danger. There is still no evidence to suggest that the Chequers plan could possibly pass Parliament. No. I mean, let's be honest, I think if there was a gun to our heads right now, I, th- I think it would take a very brave person to see Theresa May is going to get through this triumphant. It, it, you imagine that there, there, there is all number of trapdoors uh, waiting for her. And if you put yourself into the heads of those hardline Brexiteer Tory MPs just for a moment, for them, this is something they've waited for all their lives. And the deadline officially is March next year. It's do or die for these people. So, of course, they're going to behave in the most aggressive you know, plotting manner because it's all, it's all or nothing for them now. If it's a deal that they don't believe is successful next year, next spring, these people will never forgive themselves. It'll drive them absolutely mad. So they're doing everything conceivably possible to fight the PM tooth and nail and, is in, and indeed possibly to bring her down over this. And they're more than ready to do that because, as I say, this means more to them than just about anything else in politics. And all this happens as Michel Barnier, the chief EU negotiator, says, look, there's a good chance that we can have a deal within two months, agreed at this supposedly extraordinary summit that's coming up in November. I suspect that's what tipped this reform group, the ERG, over the over the top because they want to kill Chequers now. They do not want it to be the basis of a deal that's brought back to the Commons because they know, just as much as the, the whips know, that that would produce a bloodbath in the House of Commons if you put this to a vote. So they think they need to kill off the Chequers plan now so that it isn't the basis of that final deal. But what's the alternative? Theresa May is sending her cabinet out over the next sort of week or two to go around all these local Tory parties and say, look, there's no alternative plan. This is the least worst option. The problem is for the Brexiteers is, well, what is the alternative plan? This week they said we will set out our vision for how we will resolve the crisis over the Irish border, this massive sticking point in the negotiations. And their plan was to basically pretend that there's no problem. Their approach to it was, oh, technology will save us. Technology will save us. It's kind of like being in the audience for a pantomime when you're six years old and you're told it'll all be fine as long as we believe enough. If you all believe enough, children, everything will be fine. The problem is your lack of belief. It's not the stubborn refusal of the facts to coincide with what the Brexiteers would like those facts to be. When it comes to the crucial, crucial Irish border, border issue, the Brexit side have never been convincing, not for one minute. As you say, they've sort of tried to brush it under the carpet, bizarrely. And the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg have been positively dismissive of the issue at, at, at times. The idea of a no-Brexit deal very much appeals to them. They believe there could be a promised land at the end of such an arrangement, such chaos potentially. They, they, they strongly believe that the, a no-deal could indeed be far better than the sort of hedging your bets arrangement that Theresa May is trying to achieve. And Theresa May just keeps plugging on with this Brexit plan that huge numbers of people say is dead in the water, has another cabinet meeting to talk about no deal, publishes more no deal studies, sends her cabinet around the country to say, this is it, it's this deal or no deal, those are the choices. A plan which, should it arrive in the House of Commons before Christmas, it still seems, has very, very little chance of passing. 
And fundamentally, if we're landed in that crisis at Christmas, three months before the Brexit deadline, I don't think there's anybody at Westminster who has the faintest idea what would happen next. If Theresa May is brought down over this... You have to question the motives of people. Yes, there are the dyed-in-the-wall Brexiteers, and you can see where they're coming from, whether you agree or disagree with them. It's very likely what Theresa May offers is not going to be acceptable to them. If you followed their careers, you knew that was always going to be the case. But Parliament as a whole really does have to consider, is it really worth... The, the political bloodletting? Is it really worth bringing down Theresa May and this Brexit deal for, frankly, party political points and short-term gain? Or is, could we actually naively think that people might behave in a rather more responsible way for the sake of the nation as a whole? I very much doubt that'll be the case, by the way. But I do think the Labour Party has to look at itself here as well, because they could play a really big role in this. Well, no, acting in the national interest seems distinctly out of fashion yes, across does. the board, yeah. to be honest. Now, apparently the ERG, the Jacob Rees-Mogg Group, has a draft plan for post-Brexit Britain, which includes big tax cuts and and also, bizarrely, the creation of a UK-only Star Wars-style missile defence shield. The whole thing uh, so hilariously bonkers, by all accounts, that Boris Johnson refused to sign up to it. Boris Johnson, imagine this, a plan so devoid of sense that the man who two years ago toured the country saying that Brexit would free up £350 million a week for the NHS ends up saying, sorry chaps, that's a bit too crazy for me. And here we are again, by the way, talking about Boris Johnson, the one thing that makes Boris Johnson very, very happy. Not that he's had much to be happy about in the last few days. This week, Britain's worst foreign secretary in living memory uh, saw his personal life plastered all over the papers and went after Theresa May, suggesting her Brexit plan amounted to a suicide vest wrapped around the UK. Then, of course, we learned about the Bojo sex files, a dossier of Boris's past misdeeds, a document presumably only a tiny bit shorter than the entire Harry Potter saga, prepared, it is claimed, by people around Theresa May back in 2016, ahead of the leadership election, which, of course, Robert, they didn't need because Boris's campaign imploded. Now, look, Lots of wailing about dirty politics. How could the Prime Minister have possibly sanctioned this? She may well not have known that it was being done. It may have just been something that somebody pulled together on her team just in case. But if you think the camps around the rival candidates weren't pulling together dossiers of negative stories about each other two years ago, you really are phenomenally naive. Of course, that's an inevitable part of the skullduggery of you know, party political leadership contests. That always happens uh, and will continue. I don't think that is is particularly much of it much of a sort of moral concern to be honest i mean the 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 big what what comes out of it is a debate about boris's own personality and suitability potentially to be a leader of this country a a scenario that is often being written about and talked about across the airwaves on a daily basis presently while it's arguable that his personal life itself shouldn't necessarily preclude him from high office and god knows there have been enough people in the past whose skeletons have been chock full of closets you know there are lots of other reasons that you think probably should preclude Boris Johnson from high office, like, for example, the way he's conducted himself as foreign secretary, like, for example, the way he conducted himself during the Brexit campaign, like, for example, the way he's conducting himself now running this kind of bizarre insurrection against his own party. There are lots of reasons 
sparing us from the nitty-gritty of what goes on in the Boris Johnson boudoir, which we could all live without, there are plenty of good reasons why Boris Johnson is probably not the best choice to lead the country. Yeah, I mean, there, there are some people who will say a, a man who's a, a serial adulterer and charlatan shouldn't be shouldn't be given the keys to 10 Downing Street. You know, that that's obviously an understandable point of view. I think it, it, it's fair to say that if we're going to start obsessing about would-be leaders being monk-like, you know, I think I think people are in danger of being a little selective in their choices. Plenty of admirers of Bill Clinton, for instance, still suggest he, he was he was a fine president on many levels, despite what he got up to. Yet while someone like Donald Trump does it, you know, the same people say he's a revolting, horrible man. In terms of, of, of Boris, no one has ever pretended that the man is a saint. His, his personal morals are at best questionable. But I think the far more important issue is whether he'd really be fit and good enough for the job. There's plenty of evidence to say he probably wouldn't be. Now, if there's one person who knows all about no-confidence votes, it's Jeremy Corbyn. After all, more than 170 of his own MPs expressed a lack of confidence in him a little under a year before he led Labour to a 40% share of the vote in the general election, a result that made him basically untouchable and also gave his supporters the confidence, it seems, to launch a full-on purge against anybody who dares to disagree with the dear leader. Hence, we are now starting to see no-confidence votes in the local parties of some Labour MPs, people like Joan Ryan and Chris Leslie, for example. It's interesting that one thing that these MPs have in common is that they have spoken out against anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It's funny that, isn't it? Uh, Robert, at a meeting of Labour MPs this week, Jeremy Corbyn said it was not his job to interfere in the democratic activities of local Labour parties, which, depending on how you choose to interpret that, could look like unofficial support for what's going on. Yeah, there's no way, Jeremy, Corbyn is going to say what's going on is unreasonable because this is his support base. These are the very same people who brought Jeremy Corbyn quite remarkably to power in a Labour Party a couple of years ago. There's, there's, there's no way he's then, then going to say to the same people, oh, I think you're being a little over the top here. He doesn't need to get too involved in the in the nitty gritty of it. But at the same time, but Corbyn probably on the quiet agrees with them. They're sort of people who are very much, the MPs are being targeted, are very much odd, at odds with what his vision of the Labour Party is. And frankly, it suits him if plenty of them get booted out. He's certainly not going to uh, condemn it. Earlier this week, I rather foolishly suggested that MPs who've been targeted in this way for no confidence votes should choose to follow Jeremy Corbyn's own example and completely ignore the result. Now, some of Mr Corbyn's chums pointed out, some politely, some less so, that what it did do was trigger a leadership contest, which he overwhelmingly won. And that is fair enough. But Jeremy Corbyn also stood for election and was elected to Parliament under all three of Tony Blair's manifestos, which I know are now sort of forbidden documents in the new world. But at no stage did anyone try to have him deselected for repeatedly voting against the policies he had effectively endorsed by standing under those manifestos for election. We have to understand that the election Labour Party is now is such a different beast to then in terms of the sheer size of the membership and the fact that this, there has essentially been a you know, political revolution, of course, inside the Labour Party. It's a completely different organisation to what it was a decade ago. And the, the very same people who are now 
in this party, they, they, they want to completely turn things around. They want a complete upheaval. They want to root these people out. They're going to be ruthless about it. And as I say, Corbyn isn't going to do anything to stop them. But I find it's, it's hard to compare. It's, when I think now of the Labour Party, when I think of the Tony Blair's Labour Party or Gordon Brown's Labour Party, apart from the fact it's still called the Labour Party, it hasn't really got much else in common with it. Indeed, Tony Blair uh, bemoaning in an interview in the last few days that there are a lot of people, and he clearly sounded like he was one of them, who think the battle's lost now, that, that what is fundamentally different about this period compared to, say, Michael Foote's leadership, and, and Michael Foote was often used as a comparison with Corbyn, Michael Foote was fighting against Militant, was fighting to have people from Militant thrown out of the Labour Party Jeremy Corbyn is inviting those same people in and saying they have to become the dominant voice in the Labour Party. And Corbyn's position is far stronger than Michael Foote's ever was. I mean, Foote came in at the beginning of the 1980s. Obviously, it was then slaughtered at the 1983 general election. Corbyn, of course, has the added bonus from his point of view of having fought a general election and not been destroyed in the way that most people predicted he would be. The grip is far tighter. What's amazing about all of this is this capacity to just obsess with internal issues and, and while you're doing it, shoot yourself in the foot. The Conservatives are busy tearing themselves apart and rather than cash in on that, Labour starts tearing itself apart as well. I am drawn to the example of Canterbury. Labour won Canterbury in the election last year. Now that breaks 99 years of Conservative dominance in Canterbury. You'd imagine the Labour activists would still now be celebrating that. But instead Instead, a small group inside the constituency was so outraged that their MP, Rosie Duffield, attended a demo against anti-Semitism that they wrote a letter of censure telling her not to do it again, which was going to be discussed by the whole of the local party until eventually the sort of howls of protest led to the letter being withdrawn. At no stage is anyone involved in that thing. I wonder what the people of Canterbury make of this. The people who, for the first time in a century, decided to take a gamble on the Labour Party, what do they make of this? But it, it seems that in this world, constituents don't matter. You know, people like me stupidly thought that MPs were there to represent the interests of the 70, 80,000 people who lived in their constituency. But in the new Labour Party, MPs are delegates. They are sent to Parliament to follow the instructions of members of their local party. And independent thought is not to be tolerated. Yes, yeah, the, the most members of parliament have of course become second class citizens in the Labour Party obviously because so many of them also are at odds with Corbyn's leadership anyway and and in terms of the, the, the Labour movement as a whole, yeah you're right it, what, what, what's, what's important is loyalty to the leader following the cause MPs regarded as foot soldiers and if they don't go along with the project then they're in trouble as, as they said the Canterbury MP has found out but we're in this extremely you know, rather bizarre, volatile political time where you say you've got on the one side, Tories not so bothered about the, the future of their party, more bothered about the EU and on the Labour side. No, again, what are they, what's their main concern? It's not about winning elections so much as getting rid of the moderates, getting rid of those pesky Blairite, Brownite types in the party. That's their priority. A 
couple more quick things before we go. You'll remember the rampant problem of voter fraud that's been plaguing our politics for years. Surely you remember it. People turning up at polling stations, pretending to be other people, stealing their votes. You remember it? Probably not, because it's not really a problem. In 2017, there were just 28 allegations of voter ID fraud across the country. Enough, apparently, to persuade the government to trial voter ID requirements in just five areas at the elections held last May. This week, Robert, we found out how that went in a report from the Electoral Reform Society. So... In response to those 28 alleged cases of voter ID fraud nationwide the previous year, when it was trialled in just five places in May, nearly 4,000 voters were turned away from polling stations because they didn't bring photo ID. Crucially, nearly one in 10 of them, 350, just didn't bother to come back. So 12 times more people were effectively disenfranchised by that than the number of people who had complained across the whole country that their vote had been stolen by somebody else the previous year. Now, look, you can't sign up to have a pizza deliver without proving who you are. So it is ridiculous in a way that you're allowed to vote without without ID. But those are the rules. And to be honest, there's no obvious voter fraud problem. And this report said if we did this nationwide, it costs us £20 million every single time there's an election to do it. And it's clearly going to end up disenfranchising many, 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 many more people than this non-existent problem has. It's, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful, well, wonderful is probably not the right word, case of good old-fashioned British bureaucracy at work, where you, you come in to address as you say, something that's a minor problem only to create a far bigger one and alienate the non- a far more significant amount of people. There's a more serious and pressing issue about how I think we vote in the future. It's rather quaint that in 2018 that we're still sort of going over to local primary schools to vote on on, on polling day, with all the technology we now have, but Obviously, that comes with all manner of dangers in terms of hacking and all the rest of it. But the way we vote, you imagine, will surely, surely have to evolve and change in the coming years. Finally, back to Jeremy Corbyn, because he could soon find himself homeless. The final proposals for cutting the number of MPs from 650 to 600 have been published. And it is not good news for the member for Islington North, because Islington North, Robert, is going to disappear, leaving the Labour leader with no constituency. That's not a problem. He can just move to one of the new ones in the same area. The thing is, there's one fewer constituency in that part of North London as a consequence. So his neighbouring MPs, one of them is going to have to volunteer to give up their seat for Mr Corbyn to survive as an MP. The only problem with that being his neighbouring MPs are the shadow Home Secretary, Diane Abbott, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Emily Thornbury, and the Shadow Brexit Secretary, Keir Starmer. So which one's going to fall on their sword for Jezza? It's a tricky one, this, for the glorious leader. And there's no question, I'm sure, that some sort of arrangement would be made for him. But it's very hard to imagine Jeremy Corbyn sort of in a seat outside North London, isn't it, really? He's got North London stamped through him like a stick of Blackpool rock. No, exactly. Even even if he, he went sort of 15 miles away, it just would not feel right at all. I imagine this would be about, that this could come into force by 2022 when the next general election is due to occur. Now we all know it's very, very possible there could be another general election before then. So I imagine it's it's very 
possible that Corbyn will fight the current seat one more time. But, you know, someone's going to have to go. Someone's going to have to fall on one of, one of those three. Oh, it's, it's, it's got lovely comedy potential. I'd, you'd love to be in the room with those four. It's not going to be Diane Abbott because of the motorcycle holiday. There's, I mean, there's, there's, they've just got too much previous. Yeah, there's, that's, there's no way that's going to happen. My money's on Keir Starmer. In terms of that inner circle, you think... You, you think Keir is probably the, the least favourite friend out of the four of them. He's a bit more of an outsider, isn't he, you, you would imagine. So maybe the, the pressure would be put on him. And after the, the great success of Brexit, maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll be the one who has to fall on his sword. Well, of course, we're now just six months away from experiencing just how successful the great success <laughs> of Brexit is going to be. So let's uh, leave it there and ponder how lucky we all are. Don't forget, uh, you can get in touch with us anytime on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram even. Uh, we're at Party Games Pod on all three. And if you haven't subscribed via the various buttons at PartyGamesPodcast.com, what on earth is wrong with you? Thank you to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.